I wanna begin our sermon by quoting a 17th century French mathematician. It's a fascinating way to start a sermon, isn't it? Hang with me, it's a great, great quote. Listen to Blaise Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend toward this end. This is the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, but it's the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but toward this object. Would you agree with that statement? Pascal essentially is saying that hidden somewhere beneath every action in our lives is a a deep desire to be happy. We go about it in different ways. Some people go to war because they feel like that will make them happy. Other people dodge the draft because they feel like that will will make them happy. But whatever the case, all of us are going through life seeking pleasure. Now, most of the time, our, our, our motives are hidden from us. Uh, from, from everyone else, even from our own selves. Um, but something really interesting happens every year in the month of December. It feels like our society gives us full permission to take off the mask and pursue happiness at all costs. We are obsessed with being happy this time of, of the year. We bring out our decorations from the attic. We put up a Christmas tree. We fill our calendar with events because we believe that that will make us happy. If you've seen any commercial over the past two weeks, you've seen a happy family playing in the snow. Even if they're selling a diamond ring or a lawnmower in the middle of the winter, they're all happy. They're probably dressed in their PJs, doing a snowball fight. We're just obsessed with being happy. If you've listened to the radio, which certainly you have, you've been bombarded with cheesy Christmas songs. But have you ever paid attention to the lyrics of these songs? If you ever like tune in and listen to the lyrics, it's all about being happy. Listen to some of them with me. Consider a few of these lyrics. There's a Christmas party at the home of Farmer Gray. It'll be the perfect ending of the perfect day. We'll be singing the songs we love to sing without a single stop at the fireplace while we'd watch the chestnuts pop. Pop, pop, pop. Real quick, anybody ever roasted chestnuts over a fireplace? It feels like this is in every other Christmas song. I feel like I'm missing out. I don't know if anybody has ever done that. I've never done this, but everybody seems to be doing it this time of the year. Listen to this. There's a happy feeling nothing in the world can buy when they pass around the coffee and the pumpkin pie. Now, I love coffee and pumpkin pie. It's the favorite part of the Christmas meal, but if that's as good as it gets, we're in trouble. (laughs) Here's one that I've been wrestling with. We sing it all the time. I I love the song, but I'm not really sure what it's trying to say. Here we go. Burl Ives. Have a holly jolly Christmas. I don't even know what that means. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. Have a holly jolly Christmas. And in case you didn't hear, oh by golly, have a holly jolly Christmas this year. It really, like when you look at the lyrics, it doesn't really say anything. (laughs) I don't even know what it means. It's just a bunch of jumbled up words thrown out there, which makes me wonder what's in that cup of cheer. I I don't know. I'm just speculating here. (laughs) Here's my favorite. It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, if you put me in a room full of kids with jingle bells and a long line of people walking up saying, be of good cheer, just be happy. That doesn't sound like the most wonderful time of the year. That sounds like a nightmare I think I had one time. Um, And yet we sing these songs. In spite of the bad poetry and cheesy sentiments, we sing these songs, we wear them out unashamedly because we wanna be happy this time of the year. I believe Pascal was right. 
We really want to be happy, and we're obsessed with that at Christmas. Now, as you know, we lit the Advent candle of joy this morning. We're spending four weeks through the month of December to celebrate some of the virtues, some of the gifts that Christ brought us at Christmas. He's brought us hope, and he's brought us peace. This morning, we're going to consider the joy that came at the birth of Christ, The very thing that all of us are are, are crazy about finding is available to us because Christ was born. And so it's very appropriate for us to take the month of December and fill our calendars with parties and with celebrations. It's a good thing. Eat coffee, eat, drink, uh, no wait, don't eat coffee. (laughs) Eat pumpkin pie. If you've got to eat your coffee, just brew a new pot. There we go. Um, We love to celebrate this time of the year, but it's critical that our joy is rooted in the right place. There's a deeper happiness available. That's what I wanna talk about this morning. When Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, he gave us access, listen to this, to the joy that is in heaven. And that is an unbearably great joy. If Pascal was right, and I believe he was, you came to church this morning because you're seeking happiness. My prayer for you this week has been that you will experience God's uh, saving grace this morning and hear the gospel in a fresh way that you will go home rejoicing in the God who is mighty to save. That's my prayer. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Zephaniah. This is not a joke. That's an actual book of the Bible. Easiest way to find it is to find Matthew and to turn back four books. That's where you can find Zephaniah. Since we're considering joy this morning, I thought it would be appropriate to dig into one of the most depressing books in the Bible. This is the truth. The first word of Zephaniah's prophecy says this, I will utterly sweep away everything, declares the Lord, from the face of the earth. It's a hard book to read. It pretty much sums up the book of Zephaniah. Like many of the prophets, it's a very strong book with very strong warnings. Zephaniah, to give you a bit of context as you find your way there, was a strong book because he ministered in one of the darkest times in the nation of Judah, in their history. He began his ministry after the reigns of King Manasseh and King Amon. If those names don't ring a bell, these men had rebelled against the Lord for 60 years. That's a long time to wreak havoc on a nation and to lead a nation astray. Uh, As I was considering a 60-year reign, think about our our neighbors to the south in, in Cuba. Think about what the Castro family did in Cuba for 60 years. Transform that nation. The similar kind of transformation happened in the nation of Judah under the reigns of of Manasseh and Ammon, mostly under Manasseh. But by the end of their reigns, the Holy Land, if you can imagine, God's Holy Land was purged with little metal images of Baal. God's people weren't crying out to God, they were crying out to the sun and to the moon. God's people weren't praying, they were going to magicians and sorcerers. God's people had even learned the abominable act of sacrificing their own children in the fires of a lesser God. It was an awful time. If you walked into the temple, you would see a giant statue of Asherah. Manasseh's rebellion was so great that 2 Kings tells us that the land was more perverse than the original inhabitants of, of Canaan. So when Joshua went in and cleared the land out of the wickedness, God says, it's worse off than before Joshua came in there and wiped it out. In fact, Manasseh was the reason for the Babylonian exile, according to 2 Kings. It was a dark, 
dark time. And so God called Zephaniah to rouse the nation out of their idolatry, which is not a fun job. Most of the time, people don't want to be roused out of their idolatry. This bit of context should help you understand why Zephaniah's prophecy is so powerfully strong and why the language is so harsh at times. He was trying to rouse them. The day of the Lord was at hand. God was coming to judge. Now, for the record, on an interesting side note, it seems like at least one person heard and applied Zephaniah's teaching. Many people believe that Zephaniah's book set the stage for the eight-year-old king Josiah to make sweeping reforms just a few years into his reign. Um, So it was heard and it was applied, but even still, it's a hard book to read. So why are we reading it? It's the Advent Sunday of joy. It's Christmas. Why are we reading this heavy book? Here's why. If Zephaniah's language is stronger than usual when he talks about God's burning anger, and it is, it's also stronger when he talks about God's love and joy towards his people. And he will talk about that. All the prophetic books end up at this place, which is why we need to read the Minor Prophets. Yes, God was angry, he was coming to judge, but his anger would not burn forever. He would redeem his people and he would bring them into an everlasting joy. The book of Zephaniah concludes with one of the most breathtaking pictures of God's joy in the entire Bible. I'd like to consider the text this morning. So if you found Zephaniah yet, turn to chapter three. Look at verses 14 to 17 with me. One commentator called this the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these unbelievable words this morning, I pray that our hearts would be receptive. The truth in this text is almost too great to believe. And so I pray that we wouldn't just buzz through these words, Lord, but I pray that our hearts would be receptive. Our Bibles are open in front of us and our hearts are open now within us to to, to receive your grace and your healing and your joy and your song this morning. Would you be with us? In Christ's name, amen. Now, it might help to think of just uh, Zephaniah's prophecy like a pair of binoculars. A lot of the prophetic books are. They're kind of looking forward. Now, for the most part, Zephaniah is zoomed in on the immediate future. In just a few years, God would come and judge at the hand of the Babylonians. But at the end of the book, Zephaniah will zoom out a little bit with his binoculars, and he's going to look down the road a few more years. He doesn't know how, how much longer, but he's looking down into the distant future. Zephaniah is looking ahead to Christmas and to Easter. And what he sees, he, he can hardly believe. He wrote a psalm of joy. This is a four-verse psalm right here, self-contained unit, uh, that is almost unparalleled in the Bible. Here's the outline. I, I don't know if I've ever been so fascinated by an outline. It's kind of nerdy, but I, I really love the structure of the psalm. It doesn't have a logical progression. Like we're used to hearing the theological truth, maybe a transition, and then the application. It's, it's, it's backwards this morning. And really, it's like, it's like you're talking to somebody that's looking through a pair of binoculars, looking ahead to God's future salvation. 
as he looks ahead and sees it, the first thing that he says is rejoice. Why is that Why are we happy this morning? Because God has saved you. It's the second point in the outline. Which the question then is why? I mean, we've just spent three chapters talking about his anger. Why has God saved us? Well, the answer is stunning. He's rejoicing over you. That's why God has saved you. He's happy with you. He's, de- he's delighted in you. He wants to save you. That's the outline this morning. And that's the way we're gonna follow it uh, today. So let's begin in, in, in uh, verse 14. Zephaniah looks into the future guided by the Holy Spirit. He sees a glimpse of God's remarkable salvation, but instead of outlining that salvation, he just tells the people to start singing. Rejoice, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so the Psalm begins with the application. And so we're gonna begin this message with the application today. Sing aloud, shout and rejoice. That's the application of the text. We're told to obey, listen to this, before we even have the reason to obey, before we hear this story. This seems a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Most of us want to hear the truth, and then if we're moved, if, if it stirs us, then we'll respond and worship. I wonder how often we walk into church commanding ourselves to sing and to rejoice even before we hear the sermon. Instead, usually, if I look back on my life, a lot of the times I walk into church, see what the songs are, see how the mix is, what's going on this morning, who do I see, what is my mood? If I'm moved, then I'll sing, then I'll rejoice. If not, I'll just wait till the preaching. I wonder if so many of us live joyless Christian lives because we're waiting on our emotions to sweep us away. I'm learning, listen, if you, if you wait for joy, you'll rarely experience it. If you wait for joy to sweep you away, you'll rarely experience it. That's not how the Bible speaks of joy. In the Bible, as JP mentioned, joy is a command. Think about how Paul admonished the church. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Again, I'll say it, just in case you didn't hear. Rejoice. We don't wait for joy to sneak up on us. No, 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 we, we command it. We rejoice in the Lord. When I decided to preach this text a few weeks ago, I wanted to memorize this verse and let it begin working in me. Obviously, I started with verse 14 to memorize first. And so I had verse 14 rolling around in my head before I had the rest of the story rolling around in my head. So I tried to obey The Bible says to sing and to shout and to rejoice and exult in the Lord with all your heart. And and, and so I've I've been trying to do this. I've been singing whenever I could. I've even tried to shout. Yes, it was in my car, but it still counts as a shout to the Lord. Now, to be clear, I want you to hear this. Over the past two weeks, I would imagine that you're probably, you have a similar two weeks. My emotions have been all over the place. Uh, sometimes I woke up feeling refreshed, feeling ready to conquer the day. Other days I woke up, bags under the eyes, not quite sure how I was gonna make it through the day. Some evenings my wife and I would, after we put the kids to bed, we would go to the living room and just bask in God's provision for us. There have been nights like that over the past two weeks. Other nights we've, we've wrestled through anxiety. Times I felt God's divine joy. Other times I felt hardened by sin but I constantly heard the commands of Zephaniah. Sing, Michael, rejoice in the Lord. 
sing. And so I tried to obey. And here's the lesson that I'm learning in this. Sometimes the first thing we need to do is sing. If you don't feel God's salvation this morning, you know the best thing you can do? Sing about it. Sing about it. If you need to, go get in your car this afternoon and shout. (laughs) I wonder if this is why the church has put singing at the beginning of the service for 2,000 years. Next Sunday, I I hope you will walk into church commanding yourself to sing. Rejoice. Remember this story. Sing it. If you want to experience the joy of Christmas this year, I would encourage you to sing, shout, and rejoice with all your heart. Now, please hear me. I'm not encouraging some empty psychological experiment here. Like if you want to feel happy, just just sing a couple of songs. No, 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 no. We actually have a very good reason to sing. We have something to sing about. We don't have to sing about coffee and pumpkin pie to make ourselves try to feel a little bit happier. We have a gospel that we can sing about and a great God who saved us. That's the second part of the outline. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. This is what we sing about when we sing at Christmas. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Zephaniah gives us here two really strong reasons to celebrate. The first one is that God has taken away your punishment and our enemy. That's a good reason to sing. The second one is that the king, God himself, is in our midst, taking away our fear. Let's look at each of these briefly. Let's look at the first one. We sing because the Lord has cleared away our punishment, cleared away our enemies. When when Zephaniah wrote these words, the nation of Judah had two major problems. The, the first problem was this, God was angry at their sin and he was preparing a day of judgment. The second problem was this, that the Babylonians were gaining power in the north and they were coming to destroy them. They weren't at a good place. These were very real problems that Judah had no answer for. Their metal gods were powerless to save them in that day. God did in fact come um, to use the Babylonians to judge his own people. But as Zephaniah, again, he looks further in the future, he saw a better day where God had taken away the judgments against his people and had cleared away their enemies. He saw a day when God's people would be freed. Zephaniah was looking ahead to Christmas. He was looking ahead to Easter. Now, certainly, I'm not saying that Zephaniah could make out a manger and a cross. He he didn't understand the details, but we know the details, Christ was born in a manger and he suffered on a cross to take away our judgments and to take away our enemies. You see, it may not feel like it this morning, but you have the same two problems that the nation of Judah had. God is angry at our sin and Satan wants to destroy us. Do you hear that? We face God's holy judgment and our enemies fierce attack. We're no better than the rebellious nation of Judah. They bow down to metal shrines. We have erected idols in our heart. They trusted in their wealth instead of God. We have way more money to trust in than they did. They were arrogant. They were proud. They oppressed the poor. We're arrogant. 
We're proud. We deserve the same fiery judgments that God brought against Judah. I want you to hear this. All of the passages, the fiery judgment passages in the first three chapters of Zephaniah, you could read them as though they belong to you. That's the condition we're born into. But listen to this psalm. God has taken away the judgments against us. He's cleared away our enemies. How did he do that? Did he just change his mind? No, no, no. He did this by sending his son Jesus to die for us. And so when Jesus hung on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, he was fully absorbing God's righteous anger that we were meant to bear, the judgments against us. The cross of Christ satisfied God's holy wrath. That's how he took away our judgments. He, He cleared them away. And at the same moment, I want you to hear this too, as he hung on the cross, not only did he clear away your judgments, he also dealt with your greatest enemy. Satan was humiliated, rendered powerless. The grave was robbed of its power when Jesus hung on the cross and rose from the grave. Listen to Paul summarize this great salvation in Colossians chapter two. He's essentially saying the same thing Zephaniah did, but with a little bit better view. And you, verse 13 who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we have a reason to sing this morning. We just sing it. God rest ye merry, gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us, what? From Satan's power when we had gone astray, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Here's the second reason to sing. The end of verse 15 says that the King of Israel, the Lord himself, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. God's salvation takes one step closer and it gets one step better. This verse taps into one of the most dominant themes in the entire Bible. The Lord himself came to dwell among us. God saved us, listen to this, so that he could be with us. The story of the Bible is a story of God moving progressively closer to his people. It will consummate with the new heavens and the new earth descending and God coming down with it to be with his people forever. But the climax of the story happened in a a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The God of the universe came to dwell with people. He took on flesh. He entered into the womb of a virgin. The goal of the gospel is God's presence. It's God and man united. But I wonder if that's how we live. Is that the goal of your life? Are you progressively moving closer and closer to that day where you will be completely united with God? Where you will stand before Jesus? I wonder if, I wonder if many of us are living with our eyes just set on heaven and not on God's presence. Jesus came to punch our tickets into the pearly gates, and and when we get there, we'll have a pain-free existence where we'll be reunited with our our lost loved ones and maybe a pet if we're lucky. Is that that the the end of your your history, heaven? Don't get me wrong, heaven's gonna be a great place, but heaven is only great because God is there. The best part about heaven is God's presence. Zephaniah reminds us that this is the point. God has come to be with us. 
There's so many things we could say about God's presence. JP read a, a verse, Psalm 11 or 16, 11, that said that in your presence is fullness of joy. So you're gonna celebrate and have joy this Christmas. Be with God, be in his presence. Zephaniah also reminds us that his presence eliminates fear. You have nothing to fear. Verse 15 says that because the king is in our midst, you have nothing to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, what could come against us? If God's spirit dwells in you, you have nothing to fear. And so Zephaniah has shown us a powerful picture of God's salvation. He's taken away our judgments. He has come to dwell among us. But why did he do that? Why? This might not be a question you typically ask. Why did God save us? But you need to remember that Zephaniah had spent most of the book talking about God's anger. This vivid description of God's salvation tagged on to the end of the book might have seemed a little, a little bit out of place or inconsistent to the original audience. They could have questioned his motives. Did, did he save us out of spite or was he somehow compelled to go on a rescue mission that he never wanted to take? Isn't he angry with us? That's not what Zephaniah found when he looked into the future. When he looked at the salvation that God was going to, to provide, he did not hear a sigh of frustration from the heavens. Here I go gonna save this rebellious people. No, 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 no. Instead, he heard a song of celebration. This is the third point in our outline. God saved us because he wanted to. It brought him great joy. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In verse 14, the psalm began with three commands to sing and rejoice. Sing, God's people, shout, rejoice with everything that you have. Now in verse 17, it, it comes full circle and it will have three more references, but this time God is the one singing. He's rejoicing over us with gladness. He's quieting us by his love and he is exulting over us with loud singing. That middle one, just to let you know, the, the, the translation is literally, God is quieting over us in love. And so he's rejoicing over us with gladness, quieting over us in, in quiet contemplations of love. And then he breaks out with loud singing. That's God. If this verse weren't in the Bible, I think I'd have a hard time believing it. Most of the commentaries that I read express similar sentiments. One said this, to consider almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind. I think most of us would say God is love and God loves us. But when's the last time that you stopped and just experienced that love? God not only loves you, he expresses that love for you. They're singing. It's very easy for us to go through life imagining God to be angry and stern. Sure, he saved us, but it was only to clean up the mess that we made. He has no desire to be with us. He, he sent his son and now he's distant from us. And I wonder if you go through life like that, with the heavy, stern face of God, 
When you look to the heavens, you, you feel the, the silence of a distant deity. That's not how the Bible describes God. Zephaniah tells us that God delights in our salvation. It brings him great joy. Now, we usually think of the singing that happened here on earth on Christmas morning, but have you ever considered the singing that happened in heaven? And the joy that was breaking out, the loud rejoicing and exaltation that was happening in heaven. God doesn't just sing over you. The Bible says he sings over you with loud singing. Earlier this week, as I tried to apply the text, remember the applications at the beginning, as I'm trying to sing, as I'm trying to shout to the Lord, sometimes I locked up and I had a hard time singing. I had to make sure nobody was looking before I shouted out to the Lord. God doesn't have the same reservations. He sings loudly over you because he delights in you and he wants to save you. When you humble yourself and repent of your sins, God shouts out in pure joy over you. That is a life-altering truth, friends. If you live under the silent and stern face of God, you will be desperate for the approval of others. You will work yourself to the bones, making sure that the people in your lives are perfectly pleased with you. Any other people pleasers out there? I do this so often. But if you just stop and listen to the song of heaven, God is singing over you. There's nothing you could do to make him more happy with you than he already is. That is a life-altering truth. You can rest. You don't have to work. God's already pleased if you have Christ in you. This is perhaps the greatest reason for us to sing and celebrate at Christmas. When Christ was born, God's joy broke out into our universe. There's nothing more contagious than joy. Whenever you watch a funny video on YouTube, what do you do? you share it, right? Whenever you see something cute, you're like, come here and look at this. Whenever somebody starts smiling and laughing, it can break out into a room. When God's joy came to our earth, it spreads through our, our universe. When the God of creation sings over us and rejoices, I, I don't know how we can stay silent. 